0: Welcome to The Third Rail Entrepreneur, a podcast about enrichment, enrichment of your mind, your relationships, your body, and ultimately your business via the entrepreneurial path. My name is Alistair MacDonald. Let's get started. Welcome back. Now, welcome, I suppose, to both of us in this conversation. I know that it's been a long period, my longest yet, of radio silence. The truth is, I've just been doing too much cool stuff. And I want to start by saying something that I don't really didn't ever really expect to say on this podcast, which is that this podcast is brought to you by... This podcast is brought to you by The Full Cycle Dentist. What do I mean by that? This is really not sponsored by them, but it is inspired by it. The Full Cycle Dentist is a private group that I work with of individuals, obviously in the dental business, that have gathered around our electronic campfire over the last year, a small group of incredible humans that are truly invested in their own growth and expansion, whether it is of their businesses and their profit or their families and their well-being. This is a group of individuals that I've truly come to love, trust, admire, respect, and just absolutely indulge in working alongside. This is a little end of year shout out from me to you. If you're out there, my dear full cycle dentists, what a privilege it has been to journey alongside you through this incredible year. As I sit to share some thoughts here with you today, the news and the media is abuzz with the latest stimulus package. Two different parties, both competing for the most popularity. It's, of course, not lost on anybody that we're now haggling over a $600 Per person or per household check, it's, as I say, not lost or shouldn't be that what was a $1,200 check before the election is a $600 check after it. How naive and short sighted and manipulable we are. Nonetheless, we are finding ourselves in this rare confluence of events where the most conservative, or at least the party that is considered conservative, is fighting with the liberal progressive party to see who can cut the largest check. Conservative indeed. The world is upside down, and we can't wait to haggle and fight with each other in supposedly the service of removing these pains left by and scores and scars cut deeper by COVID-19. But this is not really the stuff that is of great concern to me. I understand that there are many, many Americans, as many as 29.6 million of them, that are in serious economic distress. And it is no secret that these people need help immediately. But helping them is, of course, a short-term solution in the hopes that the U.S. economy will fire back up to its pre-COVID numbers and dynamism, which, it's worth pointing out, peaked out exactly as I predicted in March of 2018 at the fourth quarter of 2019. The U.S. economy was already rolling over into a recession by the time COVID hit. This recession was not caused by a COVID contraction. It was simply compounded and accelerated by it. All we have to do, of course, is set our opinions aside and look at the data. But that's not what we're talking about today. What I want to talk about is something far, far more dangerous than whether or not we should cut a 600 or $2,000 check for ourselves using our own money from the future. What concerns me is the broader Quote unquote, stimulus and supportive behavior of the US Treasury and the Federal Reserve in the United States, and not just the United States, but around the world. Around the world, central banks are fighting almost in this race to the bottom to see what they can do to supposedly stimulate their economy. But all it takes is just a rudimentary understanding of the principles of incentive and a basic understanding of business. When we look under the hoods, To see that there is nothing stimulatory about this at all. It is supportive. On the surface, that may sound like a really good trade. Friends, I'm here to tell you it is not a good trade, and it is the most dangerous long term decision that the United States political machine has made on our behalf in generations. I may have spoken in previous episodes, I know we've covered it extensively in our full cycle group. The decision by the US Federal Reserve. To bypass their standard supportive purchases of US government treasuries with your money and instead gone directly to the corporate bond market. I have been speaking for two years about the dangers lurking and growing inside the US corporate bond market. This is an area of serious concern, and the Federal Reserve knows it. That's why it is that they've gone straight to the bond market to buy the bonds supposedly of U.S. companies to support the liquidity issues. This is a hoax. This is a true hoax. This is diversionary. When we take a list and look at a list of who the recipients of these bond purchases are, they are largely or just as largely foreign companies. What the issue is of VW bonds from Germany benefit from our U.S. dollars, our taxpayer dollars buying their bonds. How does that possibly serve us? What about the bankrupt Hertz rental car company? Again, not even a US company. How does that support your bakery? It doesn't. The Federal Reserve is doing this to give the illusion of price support because they know that the corporate bond market is a $4 trillion bomb sitting on top of a very thin shelf of ice. One way or another, something large is going to happen. And I think it will in 2021. Oddly enough, if we are smart and deft, this will provide significant opportunities for us as business owners and investors. But that's not the point of today's conversation. There is a phenomenon in business known as the zombie company. Zombies, named after the same kind of sci-fi premise, are businesses that are not quite dead, but not really alive either. A zombie is the living dead. These are companies, by definition, whose net income is not large enough to cover the interest payments on their debt. I'm going to say that again. It's important that we're clear in our understanding so that we can be clear in our personal, individual, and professional strategies to navigate these next 18 months. A zombie company is one whose net income is not enough to cover its current not future, current debt interest payments. Just how bad is it? Just to frame out and get some context here, the term zombie companies first emerged after Japan's implosion from its peak in 1989, 1990, and 1991, a triple top in equities, commercial property, and residential property, before falling into a 25-year deflationary spiral. The Japanese government's sweeping and grand idea was that they would basically prop up these companies that otherwise should be dead by offering them endless flows of cheap, or in their case, ultimately free credit to keep the lights on. The United States, entering its own boom time of the 1990s, decided that we know best about capitalism. And so a young, naive, politically motivated economist named Timothy Geithner, whom you might recognize, who went on to become U.S. Treasury Secretary, jumped in a plane and flew over to Japan and arrived just in time to wag his oversized index finger in the face of the Japanese finance and central bank leaders to tell them about all of the perils of propping up companies that shouldn't exist. This is a bad idea, he told them, and they were making a huge long-term mistake for the Japanese economy. He was right. He was also, as we all are, a victim of hubris. No shorter than 17, 18 years later, the United States was hit with a financial crisis that was so large, it dwarfed even some aspects in its decline of the Great Depression. Geithner's solution? Zombie companies. He couldn't wait to do exactly the same thing in the sweeping field of irony and cut checks to these companies to keep them at least open. What we did was we propped up companies that shouldn't be in business. The COVID implosion in corporate credit markets and demand contraction, oddly enough, a lot of recessions historically are driven by a breakdown in demand consumers to stop buying so much. In the case of COVID-19 and the structural damage to shipping and railway and so on and so forth around the world meant that it was a simultaneous implosion in supply and demand making it one that's likely to be with us for some time. Don't let the equity markets tell you otherwise. The evisceration of many companies' revenue streams and balance sheets because of COVID-19, from restaurants to tourist companies to cruise ships and so forth, took companies that came into this that were already had very thin margins or who were too heavily predicated on their success, too heavily predicated on ongoing debt the accumulation of debt or the leverage or growth, trying to grow their way out of bad businesses, extremely common, suddenly put them on a razor's edge. The Federal Reserve ran in to save the day by offering many of these companies essentially unlimited money at effectively no interest rates. Now, there is only a few of them that would qualify for direct lending from the Federal Reserve. The rest had to go out to the public markets to borrow money. Again, these companies these zombie companies grew in number and size because of this companies that are unable to meet their current interest payments on the net income that they have just how many are there the wilshire 3000 is an index of 3000 publicly traded companies in the united states some of the largest publicly traded and largest companies in the world are on the wilshire 3000 at the time of our conversation today fully 20% six Hundred companies in the United States employing millions of Americans are zombies. Fully 600 companies in the United States, many of whom you will know. You buy their products. You use their services. You may or may not even be connected to their employees. 600 companies are operating right now inside of that corporate death spiral, the inability to service their current debt. Now, again, U.S. Treasury, Federal Reserve, say no problem. We're just going to keep interest rates as low as we can, keep lending money to the lenders who will in turn give it to you. There is so much about this that's dangerous. But what I wanted to speak about today is two of the greatest risks that this creates. When the government decides who gets access to what money, in what, what percentage and frequency and volume, it creates two significant risks for the long-term structural well-being of the American economy, by extension, the global economy, and of course, the American well-being itself, you and I. These two problems are well known in economics, but apparently don't permeate through to the ivory towers of global and national leadership. The first was pointed out almost 100 years ago by a somewhat obscure outside of economics economist from Austria. His name was Joseph Schumpeter, And Schumpeter had been inspired, strangely enough, by a lot of the economic theory writing of Karl Marx. But he was, unlike Marx, a huge advocate and one of the early economic advocates for entrepreneurs and true free market systems. Not what we see today, which is really corporate cronyism. Exactly the kind of thing that happens in a late cycle free market environment. Exactly the kind of stuff that more socialist-leaning Americans do get to sink their teeth into and complain about with complete legitimacy. Now, the problems that they have, of course, is not with capitalism. It's with cronyism. But it's so pervasive, and their reading may be so shallow that they don't see the difference between the two. And I can understand that. But let's get back to Schumpeter. Schumpeter shared a principle in his advocating for the importance and power of you, the entrepreneur, key among these various principles that he shared was the principle of what he called creative destruction. His working premise was that entrepreneurship and business is itself an idea, much like democracy, just an idea. And as a result, it is an idea that is constantly growing and a field that is constantly evolving. There is an evolutionary process at work inside, not just our biology, but the businesses and industries that we create. We know this. We simply look at the SUV parked in your driveway versus the buggy and cart that were parked in your great great grandparents' driveway. In order for us to innovate, we need to have the thing that has taken us this far die. Creative destruction. The competitive destruction and comparison between the product that I deliver at a price and efficacy for you that dwarfs that of your own. Marx himself had spoken about. These two beautiful principles of accumulation of capital and annihilation of it. Inside of any technologically driven capitalist system, there will always be temporary monopolies. Always. Whether it is Facebook or Google or Standard Oil or any number of those that have shown up through America's various business cycles. There will be temporary monopolies. The important thing for us to hold on to before we light our torches and grab our pitchforks is that these are temporary. And they are not made temporary by some ridiculous, arcane political interference. They are largely made temporary by the acceleration of technology itself. There's an old saying and principle inside the commodities markets, which is that the cure for high prices is high prices. The cure for high-priced oil is high-priced oil. When oil hits $100 a barrel, suddenly the tar, the tar sands of Western Canada or the fracking fields of Wyoming are competitively priced. It actually makes sense to start working on solar power, wind power. Because the upfront cost of solar, for example, something I'm increasingly looking into personally, not for my home, but as a uh, commercial scale investment opportunities. The upfront cost of these new technologies is super expensive. We need the price of oil to be high to justify some of these new, more avant-garde technologies. As the price rises, competition is brought to bear. That competition inevitably has to be priced on and built around the premise that we can deliver a better product for cheaper or the same product for cheaper. Either way, Progress is real. That means that you, enjoying the luxury of your temporary monopoly or the advantage that you share in scale market share, is constantly at threat with the innovation of my work. Woolworths effectively no longer exists, but Woolworths itself was one of the first stores in the world to really scale to the size that it did. It was also the first store where you could walk behind the counter and pick items off the shelf yourself. This was radical, and many mom-and-pop shops were destroyed by it. Now, there's no room for the purpose of this conversation for us to jump into the moral or ethical underpinnings of this and what's right or what's wrong. There's a lot of bad thinking around these principles. But it was important that the companies that previously were delivering the horse and buggy were destroyed by those that were providing new technologies. When the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury Prop up zombie banks. They are not just rewarding people for size and previous existence. They are inherently killing the incentive for the most valuable thing in a free capitalist market, or really in any economy. Innovation. If their objective is simply to keep the lights on at company X and the machine turning over, they will never be able to stimulate innovation. It is innovation that we need. It is new ideas, but we don't have any. We don't have any on any sort of platform. Simply look at our 2020 election cycle and what you saw with two parties bickering at each other ad hominem because they had no new ideas. Yuval Noah Harari, the historian whose work I love, makes this point really clearly and eloquently. There are no new ideas. Even the Democrats' principle or premise and promise of Green New Deal is simply new lipstick on the same pig. The New Deal was launched during the Great Depression, also, of course, by the Democrat in that case. But even our terminology is rooted in ideas of the past. We simply, as I say, put new lipstick on the same pig. On the other side of the aisle, there was nothing new except nationalism. And protectionism. That's also not new. Smoot Hawley is a great precedent for us to look at if we want to know how that ends. When you choose selectively to support a dying business, you are not just stealing opportunity from those that are trying to innovate by crowding out the space, you are rewarding the least innovative among us. You are choosing the old God, the familiar club whose members you've known for years, you're choosing to privilege them at the cost of future generations. At some point, the ruse will be up. The free money will end. The people will rise up. Creative destruction is one of the most valuable and powerful insights and tools for us to use in our economy and in our personal economy. Take some time to think about what it is Inside of your business, even inside of your life, you knew this part was coming. You know that I'm constantly trying to repurpose and cross-pollinate principles in different areas of my own life. Take this principle and ask yourself, what relationships in your life are you taking energy from those that are yielding benefit to you and simply keeping others on life support? Where is it that you are using energy to support a product a service, a relationship, an idea that is not really feeding itself. Ask yourself where you're getting that capital from. Perhaps that area, that service, that product, that person, that business, that relationship, that exercise routine, that habit should be what is getting your capital. By capital, I mean not just your actual money, but your time, your energy, and your attention. It is entirely likely that you too are stifling innovation in your life, simply in the service of keeping certain aspects of your life as they currently are. You are choosing to support a dinosaur, just like me. I have been able to deploy this principle on a number of occasions, even just over the last two years. It's been super valuable. I found myself walking away from opportunities that others thought I was crazy about. But when I looked at the long-term ROI of my energy, capital, time, and attention, I realized that I was stealing from Peter to pay Paul. Peter was the one who was doing the hard work. Peter was the one actually producing, providing for himself and his business, employees, and families, and loved ones. I was taking from Peter to give to Paul because Paul had run out of new ideas. I was taking my own time and energy from areas that were feeding me and me it in order to support, put on life support, these things that really did not merit that level of attention and contribution. This is not about meritocracy. This is about innovation, expansion, and growth. I invite you to audit your own work, audit your own life, audit your own business. What service are you providing that really is just not supporting itself? Maybe you're supporting it and justifying it with, oh, it's a lost leader. It gets people in the door. Look out for correlation versus causation. Are you really sure that this is bringing people in the door? Or are you simply supporting what has already been done? This is one of the two things that the Federal Reserve, U.S. Treasury, United States government, and all of these promises of giant stimulus bills threaten our future with. There is nothing stimulatory about this. It is supportive, and it is supportive of the least innovative and contributive and qualified among us. And I think it ends badly. But there's one more. We'll talk about that next. That's it for this episode. Thanks for being here. Hey, there's only two things that you have in your life, your time and your attention, that you've given both to me for these few minutes of today, means everything. Cheers.